0: This sermon this morning is an advertisement. It's a long advertisement, and my message today is a blatant attempt to influence you, to inspire you about thinking about a particular product. Now, before I tell you what the product is, this product has sponsors, so I should acknowledge these sponsors before we get going. The product has some minor sponsors, This product is brought to you by the minor sponsors Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This product has some major sponsors brought to you by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. This product has some epic sponsors. This is brought to you by Moses, David, and Solomon. This product has a couple of beyond epic sponsors. Brought to you by the Beyond Epic sponsors of the entire nation of Israel and the Angel of the Lord, the pre-birth appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this product has one divine and authoritative sponsor, and that is the Holy Spirit of God himself. And the product I'm advertising is Old Testament preaching. Old Testament preaching. And we see this in our text this morning. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll just look at verse 8 today. And just to remind you, in 1 Timothy 1, we're examining the church, the assembly of Christ, the beautiful bride of Christ, and the ways that the church is to beautify herself in preparation to meet her Lord. And we've seen that Paul here is warning Timothy about wayward disobedient teachers in the church at Ephesus. This is where Timothy is serving as Paul's representative And he's warned Timothy that these teachers have some problems. First of all, they have unbiblical content. Verse 4 says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Not only do they have unbiblical content, they have selfish motives. Verse 5 The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Not only do they have unbiblical content and selfish motives, but they have inadequate training. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so Paul has just commanded Timothy to admonish these teachers in the church, elders, to stop teaching. Because unlike the shepherds, Paul and Timothy, whose goal of instruction was love, unlike Paul and Timothy, the goal of these wayward Leaders was a desire to have the position, verse 7, of the teacher of the law, to be like a rabbi who enjoyed great respect and admiration because of religious sway over the people. And so we've talked about these various items here in verses 1 through 7 so far of how we are to present ourselves as the beautiful bride of Christ. And we started off a few weeks ago in verse 1 talking about New Testament preaching, This morning, I want to talk about Old Testament preaching, that we need it. After having just told Timothy that these unfruitful and unhelpful leaders in the church are desiring to be teachers of the law, Paul takes a little bit different tactic here. Because Paul was, in his own right, an incredible student and teacher of the law of God. And he certainly wouldn't want to leave Timothy with the impression that somehow... What was wrong was that these men were teaching the law. That's not what was wrong. What was wrong is that they didn't know what they were doing. And so now Paul changes to a, a positive tone, really for the first time in the whole book, about the law of God. First Timothy 1 verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And that's as far as we're going to get this morning. What is Paul speaking of when he says the law? Well, we have to do a little bit of groundwork here. First of all, the law can be used in a couple of different ways. First of all, he could be speaking of just a, a generic term to refer to all of the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament has 24 books, whereas in our Bibles, many of those are further divided, such as 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In the Hebrew Bible, the twelve minor prophets that I named a minute ago, they're all considered one book, simply called the Twelve. And so in your Bible, you have thirty-nine Old Testament books. At the Hebrew Bible, twenty-four. It's exactly the same content, though. The common Jewish name for what we call the Old Testament is the Tanakh. The Tanakh is just simply a an acronym of three Hebrew letters, each representing a part of the Tanakh. The first part, the Torah, Is literally means the teaching or the law, what we more popularly call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The second part of the Tanakh, the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im is the eight books of the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, the minor prophets. And then you have the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim, the eleven books they call the writings, Psalms. Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, one book, by the way, and Chronicles. And so with Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, you get Tanakh. And that's what an Old Testament scholar would call it, a Jewish scholar. And so we could say the law refers to all of the Old Testament. Is that what Paul is speaking of? Well, we don't know yet. The law also can be used more specifically, though, to speak of the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, one book. Now, here in verse 8, Paul isn't specific enough for us to really know what he's talking about. He could have used another common label for the Torah. He could have said Moses. That often refers to specifically those five books. But from verse 8 alone, we can't discern what he's talking about. Whether he's speaking of all of the Tanakh, all of the Old Testament, or specifically just the Torah, the Pentateuch. But we're thankful for context, because context helps us here. We get a major clue in verses 9 and 10, which we'll look at in detail next time. Verse 9 says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Every single one of those prohibitions has a specific reference, guess where, in the Torah, in the law, in the Pentateuch. So he is speaking specifically here of the Pentateuch, the law proper, we might say. Last year when we started the Pentateuch, on Sunday evenings, we took five messages to introduce the Pentateuch, and one of those was a message I did called The Christian and the Old Testament Law, and we did a basic orientation to the law, and some of you weren't here for that, so I think it might be helpful just to reorient ourselves, to gather our thoughts. Before we really get into this text, I want to tell you about the law and how the Christian views the law. That'll be the foundation for what we do this morning. So we we did in that message a few basic orientation items, and I'll give you four of them. First of all, the law for the Israelites was not about earning salvation. The law was not about earning salvation. It was, however, the means by which God's people would live out their relationship with God in a witness to a watching world. Exodus 19 says that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, meaning that they point to God, point the world to God, rather, by virtue of their behavior. The law existed to allow the Israelites to live a different life than their neighbors from the people around them. And they lived this life on the stage of the world. And their obedience or their disobedience would then prompt the nations to make observations and questions. And this was the basic question that the law was meant to prompt. Deuteronomy 4 verse 8. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And so the law was meant, first of all, to be a, the stage upon which Israel lived before the world. It wasn't a means to spiritual salvation. Second part of our orientation we did, we said that you don't divide the law into relevant and irrelevant laws. You don't divide the law into relevant and irrelevant. If you do any study of the Pentateuch on your own, invariably you will run into scholars who divide the law of God, as, of Moses, as given in three categories. And they'll say, well, there's the civil law, laws governing how the country was to run. There is the ceremonial law, those laws governing religious behavior and sacrifice. And then they would say there is moral law, those laws governing personal relationship morals and and ethics. So you have the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The problem is is that's an artificial division, and you don't see it in the text at all. This was a division proposed first by Thomas Aquinas, Catholic priest in the 13th century, it was carried on by John Calvin, carried on by the other reformers who believed in one overarching covenant of grace which united the Old and the New Testaments, so they had a problem. And the way they solved that problem, to maintain continuity, what they would say is that the civil law and the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ, has been superseded by Christ. And by the way, we would agree with that. That's true. But they would then say that the moral law of the Old Testament is binding on the Christian, that that's how we bind the Bible together. Well, there's some problems with that view. First of all, those categories, those three categories aren't found in Scripture anywhere. There's no hint as to, as to those categories. And another problem is there's no universal agreement on how to categorize the laws, which is a problem for us because we, if we're supposed to be bound by the moral law, we need to know which ones to follow, Right? If we're going to obey the Lord and another problem, and this is, I think the most important problem is you can't divide the law into moral laws. And if something is not a moral law, by definition, it is a non moral law. And we, we would have a problem saying that any of the law of God is non moral in nature. If you break any of God's laws, that is by definition, an act of what immorality. And so we can't divide those categories. Third, in our orientation, what we said was that the law is given in covenant context for a specific situation. The law is given in covenant context for a specific situation. God made covenant demands of Israel as they camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and he delivered them from their enslavement to Egypt, as you recall. But why did he allow them to be enslaved and then rescue them? Why did he do that? Well, it's so that they would have a moral and an ethical obligation to follow him. They would be bound to him. We said when we went through that message in the Pentateuch that this type of relationship in the ancient Near East is often called the suzerain-vassal relationship. The suzerain, it looks like S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, suzerain is what it looks like. The suzerain nation or king was stronger and bigger and perhaps had conquered this vassal nation. The vassal, the smaller nation, was expected to obey the laws of the suzerain. They were expected to appear before the suzerain on a regular basis, and they were expected to regularly reaffirm their loyalty and their submission to the suzerain. And in return, the big country, the suzerain, would provide protection and blessing for the vassal nation. And so a big part of the sacrificial system of Israel was that Israel, the vassal, was atoning for her offenses against the suzerain, Yahweh, to restore the peace and the harmony of the relationship before them. In other words, God expected his people to live according to his ways. And if they would do so, Deuteronomy 28 lists this huge list of blessings, financial blessing, family blessing, national blessing, protection, prosperity, and joy. And so it's important to understand the law was given in that covenant context. Now, why is that so important that this is a specific covenant context? Our last little piece of orientation to the law is that the law of Moses is part of a covenant that is no longer in effect. It's part of a covenant that's no longer in effect. And if you don't understand this, then you keep using the cafeteria approach to the law to pick and choose the ones that we think are still in effect. But the New Testament is very clear. Hebrews eight thirteen says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And you might say, wait a minute, what about the Ten Commandments? Are you telling me we're not bound by the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments were the core laws upon which all other laws were, were based. Every other law in the Pentateuch has a root in one of the Ten Commandments, but they are part of the Old Covenant, and as such, they are not binding. But, if you read carefully through the New Testament, what you find is that every single one of the Ten Commandments, except for the Fourth Commandment, is reaffirmed in the New Testament. The Fourth Commandment, of course, is the law of Sabbath. Why is that one not reaffirmed? Because Sabbath is the sign of the Old Covenant. It's the same. It would be weird for us to have a a Sabbath in the same way it would be odd for in the old covenant for them to celebrate the Lord's table. They wouldn't do that. The Lord's table. Communion is the sign of the new covenant. And so as recipients of the new covenant in Christ, we're not bound by the Torah, but we're bound by the words of Christ given in the New Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament called the law of Christ. So we are under the law, just a different one, a new law. But the law of God is given to Israel as the way for them to live out their covenant with God prior to the new covenant in Christ that we enjoy. That's not erased. That's not forgotten. The law still embodies the character of God. The law still embodies all that God is as far as his principles of holiness and all that he requires of his people for every age. And so, according to Paul, the consummate Jew and the apostle of Christ talk about a great bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. According to Paul, now we know that the law is what? Good. If one uses it lawfully. So, with that foundation, what I'd like to talk to you about is why the church should have a vigorous program of Old Testament preaching. We get two reasons from this verse. The first reason in my advertisement here that the church should have a vigorous program of Old Testament preaching. First reason, the law is good. The law is good. What does it mean that it's good in Scripture and particularly in this context? It's goodness speaks of divine authority and divine uh, uh, virtue, that there's value in and of itself, that I don't get to judge the Bible. I don't get to judge whether I think the law is good or not. Uh, when somebody says to you, I don't believe the Bible is true. Your answer is, "What does your belief have anything to do with it? The Bible is true whether you believe it or not. Your belief is irrelevant. It is true. It's good. The Bible is intrinsically good whether someone believes it or not. Our opinion on the matter is absolutely irrelevant. The law is good because it accurately reflects God's will. It accurately reflects God's character and it accurately reflect, reflects God's demands on his people. Maybe a good thing to think about here is, what did Jesus think of the law? What did he think? Sometimes I've heard it said, well, we're we're the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have to like the law. Well, let's ask Jesus. What did he think? First of all, he kept the law and he did so perfectly. John 8, 46 says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, that's a claim to sinlessness. That is a claim to have kept God's divine standards. Jesus used the law. To withstand Satan's temptations. Matthew 4 beginning in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him. If you are the son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Could you withstand Satan's temptation. By your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy. That's what he did. Jesus corrected misinterpretations of the law. It was important to him. That the law was interpreted correctly. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He corrects misinterpretations of the law. He explained the law. He took time to explain in the greatest genius answer of all time about the law of God. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 7, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the genius. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, if you love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor, you have kept every law. That's genius. He even condemned Israelites who neglected the law. He condemned them. Matthew 23, verse 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And you might say, well, how is Jesus the bridge between the law and me? Well, he even stated his purpose in relation to the law. Matthew 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what's the point of that? Well, the point is, is that for the first time in all of human history, a human being, Jesus Christ, who is fully divine, fully God, has kept the perfect standard of God's holiness, of God's righteousness. First time ever. That's what Jesus thinks of the law. And If you took the 15 minutes that it takes to read Psalm 119, all 176 verses, you would see that writer affirming the goodness of the law. Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 72, your law is better than gold and silver. Verse 97, I love your law. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. What, what a list, wondrous things and delight and better than gold and silver. It's beloved, it brings peace, it brings stability. Now, we could probably all agree on that. But the goodness of the law isn't just an intellectual agreement that says, yeah, the law is good. It's more than that. Because when Paul says the law is good, whether you know it or not, we struck gold. We hit this gold mine because in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which are rightly lumped together because of their very similar purposes, Paul uses two different Greek words, most often translated good, 34 times. And I want you to see this correlation here. Because Paul is concerned that Christians not just believe sound teaching, not just say, yes, the law is good, but that they conduct themselves in a godly fashion in accordance with what they believed. And if we peruse the pages of the pastorals, to put it that way, listen how often good is associated with obedience, with conduct, with law, so to speak. Three verses earlier, 1 Timothy one five, the aim of of a shepherd's instruction is love from a pure heart and what? A good conscience. Same chapter, verse 18, Timothy is to wage the good warfare of defending sound teaching and the biblical gospel. Chapter 2, verse 3 of 1 Timothy, it is good to lead a peaceful and quiet life, dignified and godly in every way, goodness and behavior. 1 Timothy 2.10 women who profess godliness prove it with good works first timothy 4 6 timothy is to be a good servant of christ chapter 5 verse 10 older women in the church are to have a reputation for being good doing good works chapter 6 verse 18 the wealthy believers are to be rich in good works to be generous ready to share you move to 2nd timothy chapter 2 verse 3 timothy was to be a good soldier of christ Chapter 2, verse 21, our pursuit of holiness is so that we can be ready for every good work. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says at the end of his life that he has fought what? The good fight, meaning he's kept the faith, he's been faithful to the end. Titus, chapter 2, verse 5, young mothers are to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind. It's the Greek word agathos, good, same word, Chapter 2, verse 7 of Titus, Paul told Titus to show himself a model of good works. Chapter 3, verse 1, the Christian is to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8, we're to be careful to be devoted to good works. The law is good, and the ultimate expression of that goodness is that it leads us to live out our faith in tangible, observable ways which are also good, not to earn our salvation in Christ, Because we possess salvation already, but simply because we have salvation in Christ. And so the law is good. The first reason in my advertisement that the church should have a vigorous program of Old Testament preaching, the law is good, meaning it leads to righteous behavior. The second reason, the law is useful. The law is useful. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There is a condition here upon which the goodness of the law is predicated in terms of how it's used. If one uses it lawfully. This word lawfully only has one other use in the New Testament since 2 Timothy 2.5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes. Same word, according to the rules. So what does this mean? It means that there are rules for the use of the law. Rules for the use of the Old Testament. Paul asserts that the law is good, but it must be used properly. It must be used according to the rules. Why? Because now we're in the context of the new covenant. And so we have to understand how to use the law usefully. Now, I want to slow down for just a bit here. And I want to give you four ways that the law is useful. Four ways that the law is useful. And we're going to do a bit of a a tour here of the New Testament. I want to have you turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, I know for you note takers, turning pages and taking notes at the same time is difficult. I have prayed for you. You can do it. Romans chapter 3, four ways that the law is useful. We'll be in Romans 3 beginning in verse 19. The first way that the law is useful is to stop your self-defense. To stop your self-defense. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What is the Apostle Paul saying here? He's saying that every human being is accountable to the perfection, to the holiness, to the character of God. And this is expressed in practical terms in the law. No one can argue that he's not guilty of sin because all you have to do is compare your life to the law and you can say, yes, I'm guilty. Now, what we like to say is, now, hang on just a minute. I'm a Gentile. Even if I had lived back then, I wouldn't have been under the law anyway. Well, look over probably on the same page in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and you say, hey, that's me. I didn't have the law. By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What is he saying here? He's saying that God has placed a conscience in mankind. And whether you've ever even read the Old Testament or not, you were born knowing that murder is wrong. You were born knowing that theft is wrong. You were born knowing that honesty is right. You have these things within you. And so it's it's not as if somebody is out in the world and says, well, I've never read the Bible. Therefore, I have no sense of right and wrong. Every human being has a sense of right and wrong. Look with me back at chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being by works of the law will be justified, meaning acquitted, meaning to be declared righteous. But what do you get from the law? It says you get knowledge. The law is the straight and true standard. And you compare it, you butt it up against your crooked life and you see, oh, I am not straight. I am not like the law of God. I am not like God. I'm different. And so the law stops your self-defense. It stops you in your tracks. Literally says in verse 19, it shuts your mouth. The greatest sermon I've ever heard on Romans chapter 3 by Dr. Marvin Rosenthal when I was 12 years old, somewhere in that vicinity, He said, you will not appear before God and give your excuses. You will not appear before God and give your reasons for your sin. You will not appear before God and say, but God, here are my rationalizations. I'll never forget him saying that if you try to open your mouth before God, he will say, shut up. You have nothing to say. The law stops you from defending yourself. You have no defense. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, a couple of pages over. The second way the law is useful. First, the law is useful to stop your self-defense. The second way the law is useful is to justly condemn your sin. To justly condemn your sin. To justly condemn your sin. Now, Paul's going to argue here in Romans 7 verse 7 that the law is not sin, the law is not sinful, the law is useful. And in fact, he gives an example of a law, the law against covetousness, the ninth commandment, verse 7. But then what shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, the the law shows me in black and white terms that sin exists and what it is. Now, it's sort of like this, though. You have a two-year-old that's two foot nothing, and you tell the two-year-old, up on the counter where you can't see it is a jar filled with candy, and you can't have it. Don't go to the closet and get the little step ladder to step on there and take the lid off and get your three favorite flavors of blueberry, strawberry, and lime. Don't do that. Before then, the two-year-old didn't even know the candy was there. So what does the law do? It tells you what's wrong, but it also stimulates your sin nature such that it proves to you that you are a lawbreaker. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And what is he saying here? He's saying that the law is equitable and just. It doesn't make any unfair demands. It doesn't ask for that which is unrighteous. It's right in condemning your sin. It's right in condemning sinners. Can I put it this way? The law is a friend to you which brings condemnation Because it points you to the need for grace. Can I put it this way? The law is the doctor which gives the terminal diagnosis of your sin. So that the only treatment possible may be sought after. And what is that treatment? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We keep touring here the New Testament a bit. Galatians chapter 3. The third way the law is useful. First, to stop your self-defense. Second, the law justly condemns your sin. In Galatians 3, beginning in verse 22, the third way of the law is useful, to graciously lead you to Christ. To graciously lead you to Christ. To graciously lead you to Christ. Galatians three twenty-two. but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law of Moses prepared the way For the gospel, much as John the Baptist was the announcer, the forerunner, the herald of Jesus Christ, the law announced that a better covenant was coming, a fuller covenant. How did the law prepare the way for the gospel? The law demonstrated that all people were under bondage to sin. You can't possibly keep the law. And what's the point of that? The point was to get you to give up. The point was to get you to give up trying to keep the law in a way that was perfect to, to say, I can't do it. I've failed in every area. I cannot merit God's favor. Instead, it's meant to point you to someone who has kept the law for you. On your behalf. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming, of, coming faith would be revealed. Now this is sometimes misunderstood. What does this mean before faith came? Well, specifically speaking of faith in Christ, it's not that there's somehow a new means of salvation. Salvation from sin has always been by faith. Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. Justifying faith did operate in the Old Testament, but it was faith based in the Messiah yet to come. The seed of Abraham, the promised redeemer of Genesis 3.15, the redeemer Job was looking for in Job 19, the promised prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Faith in the Old Testament looked ahead. Faith in the New Testament looks back at the cross. But this verse says, we were held captive. Meaning, as I just said a second ago, the law which forbids sin also stimulates that which it forbids. We're held in judgment by the standards of God until such time as someone comes to fulfill those standards in our place, to to stand for us and with us. And so what did the law do for us? Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this word guardian, very interesting concept here. It means a leader or a guide, and it had a very specific use in Paul's day. This guardian was a personal attendant who would attend to the son of a nobleman. And this nobleman's son would be taught by the guardian. He was spanked by the guardian. He was at times beaten by the guardian. He was taken to school by the guardian. In fact, schools for uh, noblemen's sons had a special waiting room for all the guardians, for all the boys who were there. And they would wait there and then they'd go home from school and the guardian was the one to teach him his lessons and to make him rehearse what he learned to make sure that he grew up to be a true nobleman. The guardian was there to restrain freedom until freedom could be used responsibly. Now, what is this for us? The great and mighty difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is one thing and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant now has written God's law on your heart. That not only as a human being do you have a general sense of right and wrong, but as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can read through the New Testament and say, yes, that makes sense. You don't have to read husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church because instinctively you're going to do it. Now, when you read it, it commands you and you need the word of God, but you knew it. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need the guardian anymore, the law. And because of this, verse 25, now that faith, meaning faith in Christ, has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Why can you be a child of God through faith in Christ? This is so important. Galatians chapter 4, the very next chapter Galatians 4 verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, listen to this, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you catch this? The Lord Jesus Christ born under the law, kept the law perfectly so that you could stand before God. And when God would say, you have broken my law, you have violated my holiness, you might humbly say, might I ask the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in my place with his perfect life instead of my wretched life? And God says, yes, you may. That's the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, having been born under the law and lived the law perfectly on your behalf. The law is useful to stop your self-defense, to justly condemn your sin, to graciously lead you to Christ. I'm going to give you one more way the law is useful. It is to teach us principles of obedient godliness. To teach us principles of obedient godliness. You don't have to turn here But just listen to the writer of Psalm 119 concerning the law and how it teaches him obedience. Psalm 119 verse 7, I praise you with an upright heart. And why? When I learn your righteous rules. Learning the law of God creates an upright heart. Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Older versions say, I've treasured your word in my heart. What is that? That's scripture memory. Chapter 119, verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. When was the last time you had a decision to make and you decided, I'm going to read my Bible until I figured it out? Verse 29, put false ways far from me. And graciously teach me your law. What does this mean? That falsehood is put away by the teaching of the word. You're not under the law. You're not under the old covenant. You're not part of Israel. You're not part of a national theocracy. But the principles of righteousness, the principles of holiness that we need to live obedient lives, they're embedded in the law. And all of them have New Testament counterparts. Listen, the 613 laws of the Torah, they cover every part of life. I'm just going to give you some quick headings here. The Torah tells you what to think about God. That's a pretty good starting point. Exodus 20, you need to know that he exists. Deuteronomy 6, you need to know that you love him. You love God with reverence. So we know what to think about God. The Torah tells you what to think about scriptures. What to think about the Bible. Deuteronomy 13, we're not to add or take away from the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, you're to learn the scriptures. You're to teach the scriptures. You're to speak of them in your household. The Torah tells us about love and brotherhood. Love and brotherhood. Just Leviticus 19 alone says don't stand by when someone's in danger. Don't be a gossip. Don't cherish hatred in your heart. Don't put someone else to shame. That's just Leviticus 19. The law tells us what to do with the poor and the afflicted. We care for orphans and widows. We leave leftover crops in the field for others, meaning we're generous. We leave grapes on the grapevine for others. We give a poor man what he needs. Most of you are not growing crops or grapes, but the principle is obvious. It's clear. We're told what to do with the treatment from a Jewish standpoint, the treatment of Gentiles and strangers, we would call them. Deuteronomy 10, you love the stranger. You're honest and upright with strangers. Exodus 22, and how about this one? Don't defile yourself in marriage with a stranger. In other words, don't marry outside the faith. Deuteronomy 7. How about marriage in the family? Exodus 20, you honor your father and mother. Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. Deuteronomy 23, that sexual expression is for marriage only. And how about this one? Deuteronomy 24 is the invention of the honeymoon. This is all in the Old Testament. How about forbidden sexual relations? Forbidden sexual relations. There are some 25 separate laws concerning this because sexual immorality is A, an abomination to God and B, that which will destroy a nation. How about how to order your life? God gave them times and seasons for worship and festivals. They ordered their lives around the Sabbath day of rest. How about dietary laws? Many dietary laws were for the purpose of showing the world that they're different. They're set apart. And no, we're not under the dietary law, but the principle is very clear. We're different. We don't live our lives the same way that the world does. How about business practices? Leviticus 25, you're to be honest in buying and selling. Leviticus 25 also, you never loaned a brother, an Israelite, money with interest, ever, ever. And in fact, Exodus 22 says you're to lend to the poor, but never demand repayment. Yes, I'll loan you this money and I'll never ask you about it again. How about masters and servants? Leviticus 19, don't delay to give a paycheck. Leviticus 25, treat a servant with kindness. Deuteronomy 23, don't steal from the landowner. Be generous and kind. How about legal procedures? Deuteronomy 16 appoints judges. Exodus 22, they're not to be cursed, they're to be treated with honor. Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 24 tells us who can be a witness, who can't. 45 laws on how the legal system is to run. How about injury and damages? Did you know that Israel had a building code for houses? The building code was don't build a roof that someone's going to fall off of. Deuteronomy 22 How about property rights? And if I could say this really quick about property rights, Marxism, the removal of individual property, is unbiblical because God has established the foundation of an economy as property. Therefore, you have many laws about property rights. How about criminal laws, punishment, restitution? 35 laws about restitution. Now, I'm going to stop there because I've just gone through 308 out of 613 laws. The law was meant for a society set apart to live a holy societal life before the Lord, to live in peace and harmony with one another. So before anybody says, oh, I would have hated to have lived in that time. Yes, we're thankful for Christ. Yes, we're thankful for the the new covenant and the New Testament. But it wasn't considered a bad thing to live in that society. It was considered a blessing to live under the law of God. And for every one of those categories, we find new covenant applications directly in the New Testament. So the law is good. The law is useful. Now, while Paul is speaking specifically of the law, the Torah, the rest of the Old Testament is essentially the story of Israel either living out or failing to live out. God's covenant with them so we can reasonably say along with 2 Timothy 3.16 that all the Old Testament is good and all the Old Testament is useful that's the general conclusion from Paul's specific reference here to the Torah, to the law I want to give you one little final piece of my advertisement for Old Testament preaching I want to give you six reasons to devote yourself to hearing Old Testament preaching for the rest of your life six reasons and these will be fast first of all Old Testament preaching is commanded. It's commanded. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. By the way, right after this, the very next chapter, the Apostle Paul places Timothy under an oath, and he says, "Preach the word." What is he saying in context? Preach the Old Testament. Why? Because we didn't have a New Testament yet. Old Testament preaching is commanded. The second reason, Old Testament preaching is modeled. It's modeled. When Paul came to Thessalonica, Acts 17.2 says that he went to the synagogue as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Meaning from what? Meaning from the Old Testament. The very first Christian sermon, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, was an Old Testament sermon. Old Testament preaching is commanded. It's modeled. Old Testament preaching is defended. Is defended. Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, all the word of God, beginning to end. Old Testament preaching is exemplified. It's exemplified. Where does that happen? That happens in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews stands as our unique book in the New Testament as an example of a Christian sermon. It's gospel-saturated. It's focused on Christ. But what's unique about it is that it has 40 Old Testament quotes. Many of them are long. The book opens with the Old Testament right there in chapter 1, verse 5. 15% of the book of Hebrews is simply a quotation of the Old Testament. By percentage, that's the highest percentage in all of the New Testament, even more than the book of Romans. And so Old Testament preaching is exemplified. Old Testament preaching is honored by God. It's honored by God. Acts 18, verse 24, a man named Apollos is said to be powerful, said to be competent, said to be mighty in the scriptures. And what was he preaching? He was preaching the Old Testament. In fact, he was preaching the Old Testament with lack of knowledge of Christ. He preached Christ from the Old Testament, but he needed more instruction, so he received that. But he was mighty in the scriptures. And one more reason In my advertisement for Old Testament preaching, Old Testament preaching is Israel honoring. Old Testament preaching is Israel honoring. Paul said in Romans 3 verse 2, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The word of God did not come through Mozambique. It did not come through Alabama. It came through Israel. And we are to honor them for that. Romans 9, verse 4, Paul says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. Know this, by the way, he doesn't say they used to be Israelites, but now that the new covenant has come, they're not Israelites anymore. He said they are, and it's through Israel that Christ came, and by grace, the Gentile has been grafted into the people of God, and the Gentile believers have a duty not to denigrate the Jews. Not to relegate the Jews to history. Not to. Make horrible. Terrible pronouncement about the Jews. Such as was done by Justin. And Irenaeus. And Origen. And Chrysostom. And Jerome. And Ambrose. And Milan. And most notably by Augustine. These anti-Israel sentiments and beliefs. Made their way into established Catholicism. And carried over sadly into much of Reformed theology. Are duty as Gentiles is to preach Christ to the Jew. Romans 11, 1 and 2, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And Paul says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Old Testament preaching is commanded, it's modeled, it's defended, it's exemplified, it's honored by God, and it's Israel honoring. Listen, the Old Testament is glorious. It is glorious. It begins recording the creation of all things in Genesis. God gives his plan to redeem mankind from sin, and he promises in Genesis 3.15 that the Savior will come. This Savior would come through a chosen nation from God's sovereign choice of Abraham, then his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. Jacob is given 12 sons, and eventually the whole family of 70 is moved to Egypt in God's plan. This family grows into a mighty nation, so mighty that Egypt is fearful of her, and Egypt enslaves Israel, and they're in that land for over 400 years, and ultimately God sends a redeemer, Moses, a foreshadowing of the type of redeemer Christ would be, and Moses saves the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He brings them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God establishes a covenant with this people. He forms them officially into a nation. He gives them his law and he promises them a land that they'll possess for all time. And he promises that someday he'll give them a righteous human king. Because of their disobedience, then they'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And when the time is right, God leads them to cross the Jordan River. And over a period of seven years, they conquer Canaan, the promised land at God's command and Then they enter into a period of history of 300 years called the time of the judges. And during this time, repeatedly, Israel rebels. They are disciplined by God, by by foreign nations. And then they are repentant and God restores them. And this happens over and over and over again for three centuries. And finally, the people say, we want a king, not a righteous king like God had promised in Deuteronomy 17. But they said, we want a king like the kings of all of our neighbors. We want a really big guy who can fight for us. And so God gives them Saul, the biggest guy in the land. that Saul is a failure. And so God anoints his king, a young boy named David. David reigns for 40 years as a man after God's own heart. His son Solomon reigns for another 40 years. But after Solomon's sin and selfishness break the kingdom apart into the northern kingdom of Israel, which only lasts 209 years, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which only lasts 345 years. During the time of the northern kingdom, during those 209 years, God sent prophets to them to preach repentance, to warn of judgment, and to encourage them that restoration is coming. He sent Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Hosea. And during the 345 years of the southern kingdom, He sent prophets to preach repentance, to warn of judgment, to promise future restoration. He sent Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. The northern kingdom became so wicked that God sent Assyria to decimate them in 722 BC. The southern kingdom became so wicked that God sent Babylon to decimate them in 586 BC after a battle in 597, after a battle in 605. During the captivity time, God gave prophets... Daniel and Ezekiel to his people. After the captivity, he gave Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And during some of these times, he gave prophets that warned other nations as well Obadiah and Jonah and Nahum. The survivors of God's people in the south are exiled for 70 years, but according to God's promises, a remnant returns. They rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple. They begin humbled. They begin eager to serve the Lord. But once again, they soon turn away from the Lord. And God, through the prophet Malachi, gives one more word. And that last word is that he's going to send a prophet who is like Elijah to turn God's people once again to repent. And here are the last words of the Old Testament. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then God is silent 400 years until a prophet like Elijah comes. Really, the last Old Testament prophet, the one to say that Messiah is coming, the promised Savior is coming, the Redeemer is arriving. Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Listen, we need Old Testament preaching because the story of the Old Testament isn't finished. It's not done. Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, the very end of our Bible says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You might say, well, the gospel is really only contained in the New Testament so we better stick to the New Testament. Did you know that the very last gospel appeal of the Bible is found in Revelation 22, verse 17. And it says, The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is a gospel appeal from Isaiah 55. An old testament passage, the last New Testament appeal to come to faith in Christ comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, 1. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Not because salvation from sin, called the waters of life, are free, but because the price has been paid. Paid by the Savior first promised in Genesis 3, predicted 300 times in the Old Testament. Now, I am a preacher, and so I get to use the word conclusion multiple times. But my final conclusion, I have an action item for you on my advertisement for the Old Testament. For Old Testament preaching, I've traditionally preached primarily from the New Testament during our Sunday morning services. But the main reason we started a Sunday evening service is for Old Testament preaching. That's the reason we did it. Because setting up outside like this takes so much time and so much effort due to our governor's mandates Uh, during COVID here, setting up twice on a Sunday isn't possible. And plus, uh, in the parking lot right now, Sunday nights is 250 degrees. So that doesn't work. But we do have a team led by Nate Carr that has put together what we might call No Frills Wednesday Evening Service. We're going to do this in the backyard, not this Wednesday, but starting August 19th. It won't be here. It'll be in some of these backyards. Here's what I mean by no frills. You bring everything with you. Bring your own chairs, lawn chairs, camping chairs. Bring your own water this time of the year. Bring your own bug spray. If you get bitten up, that's the judgment of God because you didn't bring bug spray. And beginning the 19th, Lord willing, going all the way through the end of September, we'll meet together Wednesdays at 7 o'clock and we'll get back to the Old Testament. You'll get an email with some information about this, but I'm praying that you'll brave a little hardship, a little challenge for us to gather not only under the glorious light of the New Testament, but under the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. Amen. Let's look forward to that together. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for the word of God, the continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant such that Paul, the the perfect bridge really between old and new as a faithful Jew and yet an apostle of Christ, he has laid out for us the case that the law is good if we will use it usefully, if we will use it in the right way. We praise you and thank you for the new covenant. We praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whose name we know, whose story we know, we can look back at the cross and by faith come to him to have our sins forgiven and to be assured of a place in glory for all time and all eternity. We give you praise and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.